do appreciate everyone that's said yes to me to come again. So, um, we're obviously going to be looking at Jesus on trial, his crucifixion, and his burial. And I want to propose to us today that every believer should know the importance of the timings of these events, uh, because the gospel writers penned down specific time periods of this unforgettable act of selfless love. And God is a God of precision. Um, he's very specific and he's very detailed. And I couldn't help noticing those details when I was looking at it, of the timings of the cross. And it's also going to strengthen our faith in knowing that Christ fulfilled the law. And even in these very, very crucial times of his life and further anchoring us in the truth that Christ is our Messiah. And we're going to look at these, uh, the detail of uh, people uh, in this event and look at what we can learn from them, what we can um, be aware of in our walk. And we're going to look at details on Jesus' journey to Golgotha because there's some very powerful um, references to enrich our faith. And I pray that that will help enrich your faith tonight. So we have the morning. One second, sorry. So on a very early Friday morning, Upon sunrise, it's shining gloriously across the land of Jerusalem, which signifies a new day has begun in accordance with the Hebrew observation of days. And it's a day that marks the most historic and monumental event in all of mankind's existence. Nothing is going to come to this intensity. Nothing is going to ever be as intense and as serious as Jesus dying for the sins of the world. And this is marking the glorious day of redemption for us. As this day rises with sunlight, signifying the new day that starts, we're going to read how the light of the world, Jesus Christ, rose on the cross just as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So I just want to touch on briefly about the timing. So we're looking at Mark 1, uh, verses 1 to 5. I don't want to spend too much on it, but it's important for us because Jesus tells us specifically how the day should be observed and how, the, how many hours there are in a day, contrary to what we are told from uh, Western observation of times. Jesus in John eleven nine says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. And so just to give a brief um, overview of that, I don't want to go too deep into it. So the, the uh, cycle is split into two 12-hour cycles, um, uh, yeah, day and night, 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night. And the hours of the day are split into four phases. Um, three hours each phase. So sunrise to the third hour, which would be six in the morning till nine. Third hour to the sixth hour, which would be nine o'clock till midday. Six hour to the ninth hour, 12 till three in the afternoon. And ninth hour to the twelfth hour would be three o'clock till sundown. So that's when the day would end. So this is going to help us to really see the specifics of why um, it's important to know that little differentiation between how the Hebrews would observe times. So I hope that helps, but it's a very surface level explanation. But So now we're going to look at, um, as we say, verses 1 to 5, and we really see the blind hypocrisy of the Pharisees. John's Gospel says that the um, Pharisees were attending the Passover, and Jesus, the Passover lamb, was right in front of them. And John in the wilderness testified of this lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They knew that this Jesus was the lamb, the Passover lamb. 
but they still wanted to remain clean for the Passover by remaining in the outer courts, it says. They didn't want to defile themselves. But out of their mouth proceeded lies, all manner of unclean talk, which ultimately defiled them from within. And they slandered the very one whose feast that they were attending foreshadowed. Jesus is the Passover lamb. They didn't see it. They didn't understand it. And they made accusations that he perverts our nation. In Luke's gospel, we see they made specific claims that he perverts their nation, which is shocking. Because the very Messiah that they were waiting for has always promised to bring restoration to the nation of Israel, not pervert it. And they ended up in that act of um, accusing Jesus, disregarding their own scriptures that they said that they knew so well. And they said that Jesus forbade to give tribute to Caesar, that Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and, and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus said that, I don't forbid to give tribute to Caesar. These are desperate accusations in dire yeah, desperation in religious zeal to get the Son of God killed. So what could we be blind to uh, that could be blocking us from knowing more about God's words or learning more about who he is based on our deeply held passions? Because they had deeply held passions to follow the Passover feast but completely missed the point. <laughs> so I can, for example evangelize and be obedient to Christ's commandment to go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations but the way that I deliver it the way that I've conducted myself can mean that I can be blind and blind hypocrisy because I'm being obedient to what he said but the way I've said it maybe hasn't been Christ-like maybe it hasn't been very salt and light you know we don't want that creeping in our lives church we don't want that blind hypocrisy to come into our lives where we are obedient to the Lord like they were obedient to the law and the Passover but they totally missed the point so Jesus shows us on many occasions how he embodies the fruit of the spirit self-control I love this he's under accusation and would you if the situation permitted it remain silent if that actually helped you sow seed for the gospel and Isaiah 53, the amazing suffering servant prophecy, but specifically out of it, I just want to focus on verse 7. And that says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opens not his mouth, King James Version. Dumb just means quiet, unable to speak. And this verse here, I believe, is the fullest um, the application of it is very strong here because Jesus is brought before his own shearers, his own people, and he's led to the slaughter. Pilate, he's the one that's going to execute him. He's the one that's going to say that this is time for you to go on the cross. And so his own people brought him to the slaughter. The people that should have seen him in the scriptures. I want to share a quick testimony about that. I'll be very quick. But I was preaching in Shrewsbury and I was actually preaching about the Pharisees. The Lord made it very clear to me to uh, preach about that. It was a very strong utterance from the Spirit. And a guy came halfway through the, te the, um, the dialogue and said, 
why are you hating the Jews? Why, why have you got a thing against them? He didn't understand because he didn't hear the full context. He wasn't there to witness the whole thing. So he made an accusation against me, in, a, in essence. And Jesus, I felt the Holy Spirit say, be quiet, just be quiet. And so I did, humbled myself sometimes. When you are being accused for something that you've not done, you want to naturally justify yourself. And the Lord said, just be quiet. So 20 minutes later, he said, I apologize. I misunderstood. Uh, I didn't hear the whole picture. I um, humbled myself and say, I'm sorry. Can you explain more about what you're trying to say, please? And then another 20 minutes later, praise God, he gave his life to Christ. And I think that's an amazing story of the... Um, sometimes it just you need to be quiet in those situations and not lash back because there's some people that would want to raise up and say actually i didn't say that why have you said that about me and we want to naturally justify ourselves don't we in those situations so i'll look at barabbas so that's verses uh, 6 to 15 now and barabbas is an amazing illustration of the ransomed sinner and all of us before christ Barabbas we are um, the murderer in our heart Jesus said if you've hated somebody without cause and you've murdered in your heart we may have stolen in the other trans um, the other gospel it says Barabbas was a thief specifically but in general with us the sinner aren't we we're born in sin we can't get out of that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and Barabbas being on trial for his crimes is exactly where we stood, wasn't it, before Christ saved us. And so ransom then is an amazing um, word that means what is given in exchange for another for the price of their redemption. Or to redeem by a payment. And Jesus says in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You are brought with a price, so glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the price of your redemption from sin is nothing other than Christ's blood, that alone, holy, spotless, blameless, undefiled, unblemished. That is the requirements for you to be saved. That's the price for your redemption. Money can't buy the blood of Jesus. You can't buy holiness. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't do anything to save yourself. You have to receive the payment that has been made by Christ shed blood on the cross. And you need to put your faith fully in it. And understand that it's completely sufficient for you. And it's completely sufficient enough to save you. And you need to accept your total depravity to save yourself. And trust him fully that he did pay that ransom fee with his blood. And took the punishment that we all deserved. And in exchange he gives you his righteousness through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an amazing blessing and that's the only guarantee that we can enter heaven with him. You must be born again. So if anyone today doesn't know Christ, you must be born again.
You may think, why haven't I left this to the end? <laughs> but the exchange in the physical mirrors what is happening, what's going to happen just a few moments later. And we're looking at the word Barabbas, so his name means son of a father. So it's Aramaic origin, Bar, meaning son, similar to Ben in the Hebrew. Ben meaning son as well. And the etymology is God-given. So Barabbas could mean God-given son. Isn't that interesting? John 1.14 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Christ in his title, as John 1.14, the only begotten of the Father, and John 3.16, God-given Son, Jesus could actually quite comfortably be called Barabbas. It's quite an interesting thought. As they were saying, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. <laughs> well, Barabbas is there. He's the son of the father. And we see that in Psalm chapter 2, that God is going to send his son to save us. So they were actually saying without realizing, we actually want the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. We want Barabbas, the son of the father. And it's an amazing psalm that, as I said, God would send his son it's quoted in Acts chapter 4 and Acts 13. The apostles use Acts, um, Psalm 2 to back up that Christ is God's son, the only begotten son. And it says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Psalm 2 verse 7. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 12, um, verses 12, sorry. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And we see in 1 Kings 19 that God says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed their knees unto Baal and every mouth which has not kissed him. They should have been kissing the feet of Jesus as he hung on that cross. Because that's the fullest fulfillment of Psalm 2, that God sent his son. And they knew that kissing was a literal thing to do. It was a physical person. It's not, it's not like an allegory or a spiritual application. It's actual, literal. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. And they should have been kissing his feet as he hung on that cross. If they truly understood Psalm 2 and just accepted Christ's claims that I am, that I am. So Barabbas, in, in the, uh, Barabbas, the son of the father in the physical, in his earthliness, is swapped with Jesus Christ, the son of the father, Psalm 2. And so in that exchange, he's redeemed us so we can become adopted to sonship, whereby we all can today, in Christ, say, Abba, Father. And none of us can say, Abba Father, unless we're born again and adopted to his family. So this is the second Barabbas, the saved one, the adopted one, with the new nature. The old has gone, the old sinner has gone, and the new has come. We've been adopted in him. 
So the soldiers mocking Jesus then, verses 16 to 23. Every knee will bow. And little did they know that when they were mocking him, bowing, and saying, this is the, you know, the king of the Jews, in a mocking tone, that they will one day say <laughs> that Jesus is Lord and bow the knee. But with no mocking, no jesting at all, no one is going to be mocking God. And the scriptures say God will not be mocked. So at the judgment seat, no one is going to be able to mock God. And the grace of God here that is enforced upon these um, the legion of people like doing this to Jesus, it's sobering, to be honest with you. The grace of God is so enforced and at work here. God will not be mocked, and he's being mocked, and he's not doing anything about it. He's just taking it, taking it all in. So I want to encourage anyone that's not saved today, I want you to bow the, bow the knee to Christ today in acceptance of what he's done for you because the glory and power and majesty of God and the splendor of God, that light and approachable, it's going to bring you to your knees when he comes. He's going to bring you to your knees. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats and it's going to be too late. So I implore you, like Paul said, be ye reconciled to God. And there's Jesus. I want us to imagine this now as he's been spat at and mocked. He's actually been clothed with a scarlet um, robe in Matthew's gospel. And I had a good chat with Gaz the other day and sharpening each other, iron sharpens iron, and talking about the different colours and stuff. But Matthew says scarlet. And um, won't go too much into the differences of purple, but... Um, Isaiah 118 is the amazing. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So sin, deep sin, is what scarlet is described as. And that blood emitting from Christ's body after his scourging, his whipping. And as Isaiah says, he's unrecognisable. Can you imagine that? Looking at someone that you, you knew half an hour ago, and you actually have to do a double take. Is, is that Jesus? I don't, I don't know. He's so damaged. That's what Isaiah says. He's unrecognisable. Marred by, it, by any human recognition. So we have this incredible image of what's shortly coming. That Christ would bear our scarlet sins as he wears the scarlet robe. And that amazing hymn from Robert Lowry, How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And a reed is placed in his right hand, isn't it? And that uh, can mean a staff that is made of a reed. And that reed resembles weakness, fragility. And the message portrayed here is that the Romans tried to almost say in this act of giving him a, a reed with a staff that Christ is a king over a weak and fragile and powerless kingdom. But we know that that's not true. The Hebrew for scepter means a rod or a staff. 
And Hebrews 1.8 says, Unto the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And Genesis 49.10, The scepter will not depart from Judah. He was given a mock scepter out of fragile reeds. But unfortunately, it still shows in some way that Christ has all the rule, all the reign, all the power, and he's from ancient of days, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. But when he comes again, he's not going to have a, a, reed, a, a scepter of a reed. It's going to be a rod of iron. He's ruling with a rod of iron, and he's going to bring judgment upon the nations in the end of days. And at the great white throne judgment, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. But it also shows Christ's meekness, doesn't it? Because it says in Isaiah 42 that a bruised reed he will not break. So now let's keep imagining just this moment of him putting these, these items on him. The crown of thorns, the curse of Genesis 3. And I thank God for the revelation uh, three weeks ago confirmed by Brother Garthy's fountain of knowledge. It's amazing. Praise God for you, Garth. And he confirmed that to me. I was like, wow. And then I walked outside and then there's a, a thorn bush on the side of the church. And Jesus bore the crown that resembled the curse that God put on the ground. Please read Genesis 3 because I don't have enough time. But the consequences of Adam's sin was thorns and thistles coming out of the ground as a consequence for his disobedience. And Christ in his lead up to the cross now, as we're imagining it, He's on the road to Golgotha. He's sweating, he's suffering, he's toiling, just like the curse was pronounced on the ground. That that's what Adam would have to do to eat. And Christ was sweating, toiled, marred, weak, enduring that journey. So the crown is saying to us that here is the Son of Man, the last Adam, who has come to reverse the curse. In the new heavens and the new earth that awaits us, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, and also no more thorns. So if you have any gardeners in the church today, <laughs> there's not going to be any more thorns. And we praise God that he saved us from the curse of sin and death as well. So really the soldiers were actually mocking themselves because the items that were given to Christ authenticated who he is, what his mission is, and his purpose for coming. In their dire efforts to try and defame Christ, they unknowingly exalted him through their figurative and symbolic nature. And Jesus, just before he's going to have the nails in his hands now, I want you just to keep picturing this. He rejects the myrrh in the, in the Mark's gospel, but um, another, uh, Matthew, sorry, says the gall in the, in the King James, and it's said to be a poppy from the root word to shake, the poppy heads. And the juice from the poppy is supposed to be an opium, which is an anodyne or a painkilling drug. So Christ refused to have painkillers of the day before he got crucified, before he had the nails in his hands and his feet. He said, no, I don't want it. I don't want to take the, sh the shortcut. He wanted to 
bear it in its fullness. I think that's just incredible. So Christ rejected the easier way out. We should realise that this too is the reality of the Christian. We're not promised an easy way through. Look at Job. We're not promised an easy way. Comfort isn't a promise or a state of consistent reality. Rather, it's acknowledging that he's given us the Holy Spirit, the comforter, to comfort us in that place of being uncomfortable. The radical Christian life involves being uncomfortable. I don't find this comfortable. <laughs> My heart was beating out there like five minutes ago. I, <laughs> it's uncomfortable. And what are you going to do about that situation that comes across your life? I don't really feel like, Lord, I want to give the gospel to that person. You've given me an utterance to do. You know, that sort of thing. It's the, you know, as we have the fight or flight mechanism, but I see it as faith and flight. You know, there's only two. You're going to have faith or you're going to fly away from that situation. But thanks be to God, he's given us that comforter to help us in those situations. And Christ shows us this truth in his rejection of the goal. And if anyone says to you that it's going to be easy, it's going to be a free ticket to um, an easy life with the Lord, then Christ rejecting the goal is the only confirmation I need to reject that notion. So what temptations or motives are in our life that want us to try and take the easy way out? And are we living radical Christian lives? Christ's death was a radical act of love. And so uh, Christ on the cross now, nine in the morning. So this is the third hour to 12 midday, as I was saying, to the, to the sixth hour, third hour to the sixth hour. So just before Christ bears the sins of the world in three hours time, Satan tries a last attempt to have Christ glorified by men without his sacrifice, rather than being obedient fully to the Father and being exalted and glorified through his suffering. So we see, obviously, the same wording of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down. If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And what do we see in Matthew's account of this hour, the three hours of Jesus on the cross. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, wow. Isn't he just trying his best here? The exact same series of words. Jesus' ministry started with temptation, and it ended with temptation. This is Satan's desperation to try and reverse Genesis of his head being bruised. And that's the first sign of freedom and the gospel we see in Genesis. That he'll crush his head. So be wary, church, of that word if in your life. The whisper of if. If you really are a Christian, why haven't you read the Bible for two months? If you really are a Christian... You know, these are the things Satan are going to say to you. God encourages and edifies and, and does it in love and there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So you need to know and understand that 
if you hear that word if, remember, it can be a clear indication of who's trying to whisper in our ears all the doubt of did, did God really say? So Jesus dies on the cross now. So verses 33 to 41. So this is from midday to three in the afternoon. Six hour to the ninth hour. And these are the hours of wrath. Jesus bears the wrath of God for three hours. And we see the amazing Psalm again, 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that same Psalm a little bit later, it says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men. Jesus was downtrodden like a worm, trampled underfoot, and reproached of men. And contrary to popular opinion, which I didn't realize till I studied um, Mark and Matthew together, is that actually both criminals reproached Jesus. Both. The one on the right, as we hear in Luke's account, who rebuked the other one. He must have repented at some time during the six hours. Both criminals. Reproach of men. Reproach on either side. So will anyone here change their mind today? Will you repent like this man did? And that scripture, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That in him we would be the righteousness of God in Christ. We thank God for this beautiful exchange. So as we see now, closing up, Malachi 4. So it says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves from the stall. And wings is the extreme extremity, the edges. It's tip to tip here. Extreme edges, wings. The furthest extreme is how you measure a wingspan in a bird. Doesn't this look like the cross? Healing in his wings, Psalm 103, 12. Mike, <laughs> as far as the east is from the west. I love it when he sings that song, it's brilliant. I really do like that song. As far as east is from the west, there we go again, if north is facing me, east and west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Doesn't this look like the cross? So to finish up then, Joseph, uh, sorry, Jesus is buried in Joseph's tomb. So this is the ninth hour to the twelfth hour, closing of the day. The sun's coming down. And it specifically says in the King James that Joseph of Arimathea craved the body of Jesus. Why was he so emphatic and craving for Jesus' body to be given. We see in Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, the burial laws in the Old Testament. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day. That's why he's urgent to get him from Pilate. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that your land be not defiled, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So that's why he was urgent. He saw the day was coming to a close. Get the body quick. We want to bury him in accordance with the scriptures. And I think that that's powerful. 
that Joseph and Nicodemus were used to accomplish God's purpose and for Christ to fulfill that specific law. And he was unable to do it because he was, his physical side died. So are you aware that the word says God has predestined works for you to walk in? God wants to use you like he used two Messianic Jews to bury the Son of God. What a privilege. And just to finish, Joseph in Luke's gospel, it says that he did not consent to the whole trial that was against Christ. He actually said, nah, this is terrible. You're abusing your power. What are you doing? I could imagine he was getting like righteously angry with how the Sanhedrin and things were just accusing Christ, false allegations, false trials. He said, no, I'm not going to consent to this. So in these days that we're living in, my friends and brothers and sisters, these end days that I believe, the word of God is going to become slowly, slowly more diluted. Will you stand up for the truth of Christ that has been shared in the scriptures today? The consequences of sin, what Jesus has done about it. Joseph did. He did not consent in front of a multitude of people. He made his thoughts known. I don't consent to this, guys. I'm out of here. He's probably one of the few people who didn't consent to that corrupt trial. And are we going to consent to this, what I personally believe, that there's a spirit of the progressive spirit that's coming across our nation, that's altering God's truth, and he wants to remove sin in its entirety. And even if you speak the truth in love, that's still not going to be accepted. Because that word sin will be removed. And I do not consent to that. I don't consent to that. And I pray that you would not consent too in these times that we're in. So the sun is now setting. The Son of God is neatly wrapped up in linen. And it all seems like Friday's disappointments. But as we all know, it's Sunday's empty tomb. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much just for uh, tonight, Lord. I thank you just for the gospel. I thank you that you saved Jesus to the uttermost. We thank you, Lord, for what you did that day. We pray that if anyone does not know you as their personal Lord and Saviour, that they would be just like the centurion did. Surely this is the Son of God. Truly this is the Son of God. So Holy Spirit, we pray this work upon the lives of people that may be watching that haven't made a confession of faith. We pray that you just illuminate this truth to them and that they'd say yes to Jesus and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead. We pray this for everyone here, Lord, that you just enrich them bountifully, Lord, with these revelations. And I trust you, Lord, would just um, discard what needs discarding. But Lord, treasure and guard the seeds that have been sown tonight for your glory alone in Jesus' name. Amen.